The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, it's Thursday. We've got a really big show for you on Scorebox. We've got Jeff and Annette in Frankfurt. We've got Karen and myself here in London. And we've got some headlines for you. A very good morning from Frankfurt. Mario Draghi gets ready to say farewell in his final press conference. This, as economic data in the Eurozone continues to weaken, negative interest rates look like they're here to stay for some time. Uh, Tesla shares surging more than 20% after hours as the electric car maker delivers with a surprise profit and a bullish outlook. Elsewhere in the sector, though, Ford sliding in extended trade as the automaker cuts its full-year profit guidance and becomes the latest company to warn about a slowdown in China. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg faces a six-hour grilling from U.S. lawmakers over elections, privacy and its Libra cryptocurrency but warns China will pull ahead if the U.S. stands still on tech. I just think that we can't sit here and assume that because uh, America is today the leader, that it will always get to be the leader if we don't innovate. And innovation means doing new things, okay. and that does mean it, and new things have risks. A bunch of earnings crossing here in Europe on the back of what has been pretty thick on the ground in the States on earnings as well. And numbers just crossing from BASF. Uh, this is a diversified chemicals group. If you look at their year-to-day performance, not bad. Double digit up 12% so far. So let's just dive into this report card. The group says its third quarter EBIT before special items has declined 24% from the prior year quarter. The outlook for 2019, though, has been confirmed. Sales print. 15.2 billion euros, that uh, is uh, minus 2%. Sales volumes match the level in the prior year quarter. The company says EBIT before special items declines to 1.1 billion euros. That was primarily due to significantly lower earnings contributions from chemicals and materials. I think some of that bodes to the slowdown that we've seen in that cyclicals and industrials. The outlook for 2019 has confirmed, uh, so that's quite key though, I think, as you see some weak numbers crossing here. Net income amounted to 911 million euros compared with 1.2 billion in the third quarter of 2018. So that tells you the extent of the markdown in this quarter versus same time a year ago. Just a, a line on what we were expecting on the Q3 results. Uh, the estimate was about 15.1 billion on the sales print. So the numbers today slightly above that. So I think expectations are very key at this point in time. And when it comes to the EBIT uh, line, also uh, fairly close, bang on on that number. Didn't so you think we'll look for the reaction might be fairly close to what we've Good morning seen. to you. Good morning. Didn't you think there was extraordinary comments from one of our stock pickers yesterday talking about buying European cyclicals at this stage of the broader European cycle? And I was actually a little bit surprising. surprised that actually that there was a, an idea that these could outperform at this stage of the cycle. And again, I think something like BASF, perhaps a case in point. What I found most interesting when I'm looking at the BASF uh, tear sheet uh, is the amount of brokers who just daren't take a view. There are 22, 29 brokers out there that I've got on my Reuters looking at this. Four buyers, three sellers, but 22 holders of the stock, i.e. who are refusing to commit one way or the other. And don't forget if you've got a mandate to go long. 
on stocks, you have to pick some stocks to put in the portfolio. Easier if you think there's going to be a downturn and you also have the ability to go short, then you can go short a whole bunch of names at this point. So I, I would say if you're looking for something to park and then if you think there's less downside because you've already hit the bottoms, then I dare say you're a little bit more protected at this point by buying those beaten up names. Yeah, uh, yeah. The good, other thing good is, dividend yield on this stock though. 4.7% yes. dividend yield on BASF, trading at around about 15 times forward. So in line with the broader market. Now I've just been um, holding off a little bit, just doing too much on Daimler until I get uh, some more numbers. But I've got a few numbers. So what I'll do is I'll just go through Daimler's uh, third quarter sales figures. They look like they've marginally beaten expectations at 43.27 billion euros. 43 was the expectation. Um, the third quarter EBIT looks like it's a decent beat. Credit where it's due, 2.694 billion euros, as opposed to expectations of 2.5. Um, I'm just looking through the various figures. They look pretty solid. Um, but the CEO of Daimler pointing out, which I think the whole industry knows, that we must reduce our costs significantly. And that's very interesting because, of course, Daimler comes in at the luxury and their margin you would hope to be significantly higher than the recurring operating margin figure we saw yesterday from Peugeot, which is around about 4.5%, if I remember, off the top of my head. But, of course, uh, Daimler, same as Volkswagen and the rest. Same challenge. Let's get this new same fleet of products out there. Let's make the new fleet of products product profitable and let's try and make some money out of China. It ain't rocket science, especially if I say to our viewers, did you have a look at the Ford numbers yesterday? Everything we were talking about, the car industry, when we were discussing Peugeot, pretty much you could transfer that dialogue to what we're seeing in Ford, which lowered its profit forecast last year, weaker sales in China and, and offering big discounts in North America, which goes back to the point about profitability per car and mm. are these glorified finance companies. I love this line from the company that they must reduce costs significantly because that was a similar line that we've heard out of American autos and other, other European autos, that the costs are just staggering. The amount of money they have to plough back into research and development to get Huge. these electric or hybrid vehicles on the road and then self-driving autonomous vehicles are coming at some point as well, which means a very connected car. And I spoke to IBM when I was at the, the Motor Show recently, mm -hmm. and they were pointing out with some of their research, a lot of these automakers are not connected to one digital platform, let alone a number. And you think about autos being a connected device for the future, you're not, not even operating on a digital platform yet. It tells you how fundamentally uh, challenged these cars are at this point because they need to connect up to various different devices in the car, not just one platform, but various platforms. Well, so just the there's a lot of work to be done. Of technology, you mentioned IBM. Did you see the? the I think it was Google yesterday talking about the quantum computing and how they've made some breakthroughs on their qubit and everything. I was trying to get into the physics of it. It's not my forte, of course, but quite extraordinary how quickly the technology is changing. I just had a, a quick look at Ford versus Daimler in terms of the the uh, the valuations. Uh, Daimler does trade at the top end of a very low range. It's got to be said, five to six times forward is where this sector trades. Daimler trades at eight times. Ford actually, again, at the top end, 6.9 times forward on this one as well. But again, as you say, the challenges are there. Hmm. Um, I was trying to get you a chart of autos versus chemicals. I think they're still working on it. But effectively, you've had a much better pathway in chemicals. And why there's a link? Because obviously, there's a, there is a very strong link between chemicals and autos in some of the production. But a smoother path, even though there's the same cycle that they're contending with, the slowdown that's been taking place, the implications from a trade war, impact to consumer, a change in uh, dynamics from one type of car to another, mm. chemicals, because it's been slightly sort of removed from the autos directly, much better performance.
like much better over the course of this year. Not the highs, not the lows, and a steady grind towards the, the peaks that we're seeing at the moment. A um, bit more of a commentary on uh, the trucks division over at Daimler. A hit by a downturn in Europe and North America now expects revenue at the trucks division in the magnitude of the prior year. And what better way to segue to the ECB conversation than talking about a downturn in Europe, which is what one of Europe's largest industrials is talking about. But was that part of the plan from the ECB? Well, clearly not. Um, Mr. Draghi, his legacy will be marked by whatever it takes. The 2.6 trillion euros in bond buyers and negative rates for the eurozone. Now, we've reached the end of Mario Draghi's ECB era as the outgoing president presides over his final European Central Bank meeting. So we've actually put a power couple together in Frankfurt. Look at them desperately ready for that press conference. Annette, I'm looking forward to your conference uh, question uh, to Mr Draghi. And Jeff, I know that you've got a, uh, a long, long history of standing outside ECB buildings in Frankfurt as well. But my big question for you, Annette, I guess, is what is your question to Mr Draghi going to be? Well, it depends which question I'm actually getting. If I'm getting the first, it might be... <clears throat> what he thinks about the rift in the governing council. If I'm just getting one a little bit down the road, it might be perhaps a different one. But you can also come up with some questions and advice. I would actually appreciate that. Yes, yeah, there's, a, there's an invitation to our audience to put some questions on Twitter um, that you'd like Mr Draghi to answer. I'm sure there'll be uh, no holding back when it comes down to that. But Steve, you and I were mere striplings, what, eight years ago when Mario Draghi uh, kicked off his term here at the European Central Bank. And as you'll recall, there was great optimism about what Mr Draghi would bring to the European Central Bank. And we'll talk a lot about legacy, of course, uh, throughout Squawk Box this morning. But maybe just for the sake of those who uh, only watch maybe the first 30 minutes of the program. Um, let's talk about today's meeting, because I, th I think useful just to set out the stage as to what we might actually hear from this meeting. And Annette, this is your beat. So what do you think Mario Draghi will use his last meeting to do? I think he'll get us more sort of ammunition or, or like his thinking of why this big package was really needed in September because it was so critically received and, and never before so many critics came out from inside the ECB to really be outspoken about their disagreement. So I guess we get a lot uh, on that and perhaps also on his view how long we get those low interest rates. Uh, and let's just talk a, a little bit about um, the past that Annette and I have with this institution and with Mario Draghi. We've run together a, a couple of clips here from uh, some of the press conferences we attended. So let's just have a quick listen. I would like to ask you a question whether you have been tackling also the question uh, whether Germany should spend more money, use, as we call it, their fiscal space. The countries that have fiscal space should use it. And, uh, and, uh, and Germany does have fiscal space now. However, we have to be, uh, I think, nuanced about this because Germany is also close to full employment. So uh, if there is fiscal space for some fiscal expansion, it should be carefully targeted. I wonder if you could just share with us your experience of the IMF World Bank meeting this year and whether in the conversations you've had both about Europe, profitability, investment and growth, you're going to come away more or less 
optimistic or pessimistic about 2017? We see a recovery firming up in Europe and we see the situation in some emerging markets improving. A situation which had been continuously deteriorating um, in the last year and a half. There are significant geopolitical risks ahead. And, uh, and, and, the, and, and we agree with the IMF on the point that these risks are on the downside. And isn't that amazing? We're just listening to uh, <laughs> two questions from previous press conferences that sound like they could have been asked at this meeting because you were asking about the, the, the fiscal headroom for Germany, which of course is very much back in the news at the moment, given what they said at the IMF. And I was just in Washington listening to them downgrading the growth outlook going forward. Yes, that's exactly the case. I think we are talking about fiscal space since uh, I think the height of the financial crisis, because clearly Germany was was and is still the only or one of the only countries in the eurozone who has that fiscal space, but they are not willing to give it away because we in Germany have something which is called a debt break, and they are always referring to that. It's uh, enshrined in the constitution so that the balanced budget is not just a weird idea from the Germans. It's essentially it's a constitutional matter. And that's why they're quite adamant about the fact that they're not wanting to spend more. <laughs> I mean, looking at it, Axel Weber, Jürgen Stark, uh, Sabine uh, Lautenschlager, three Germans who have effectively resigned from the institution as they've disagreed with the policy. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the case. Um, actually, Sabine is said to have had also other frustrations with inside the ECB, but still, yes, uh, Jürgen Stark clearly was running away because he wouldn't, uh, yeah, he didn't really uh, appreciate uh, unconventional measures such as quantitative easing and the idea of buying a sovereign debt, as did Axel Weber. So I think the Bundesbank thing was pretty much... Um, yeah, or the ECB was modelled after the Bundesbank, and so we had all these former Bundesbank members um, being very in very critical positions inside the ECB. Then came Mario Draghi, and with him, a completely new thinking. Just looking at image and communications for a moment here, I mean, the Northern Europeans have at times been very critical. Uh, you reminded me earlier of the, the Dragula uh, <laughs> uh, front page that we saw uh, personifying Mario Draghi as a vampire who's sort of sucking the life out of your savings, if you like. And of course, his communication strategy at times has been questioned. Uh, I interviewed him back in 2013, and I think that's the only interview we've had and most of the media have not had much opportunity really to talk to him directly. The newspapers have done a little bit better, but he's not been um, very forthcoming when it comes to those one-on-one -on -one interview opportunities. And that at times, I think, may have confused the markets because sometimes we've had messages from the ECB and then the market's done something 
And then the ECBs had to come out and say, well, actually, you misunderstood what we were saying. So communication has been a, a very interesting area yeah. of debate over the last eight years. Yeah, it was a, a rocky, uh, yeah, kind of not start. But just remember Sintra, I think it was two years ago or not yeah, last year when they came out with like a message which, which was perceived overly optimistic. And then they had to backpedal. I think, yes, you're completely right. It was always a bit of a tricky thing to read Mario Draghi. But to be fair, I think by now the market has understood him, but now he's leaving. <laughs> um, do you think that it, it was because the ECB tried to be too clever with policy and small tweaks here and there to push the market in a, a certain direction that at times the messaging was perhaps a little too sophisticated and that it could have been cruder? I think the market very well understood we'll do whatever it takes and that, if anything, will remain the dominant legacy. But at times the little, um, you know, t tap on interest rates here or tap on forward guidance there did, did seem to be misunderstood. Yeah, perhaps. And perhaps that's why they now move to uh, more of a more or less a, a bolder uh, approach to have that package approach, which you cannot not understand. And that's perhaps Philip Lane, who was um, yeah, his footprint, because before Peter Pratt, who was the chief economist uh, back then, um, he was more or less, I think, in favor of little steps to test the markets. And Philip Lane seems to be the man who likes the package approach. And that might have changed now. OK, okay. so we're, we're going to wrap it up here for the time being. Um, Annette is encouraging anybody who wants to submit a question to uh, <laughs> submit a question. And we'll we'll see how that goes later on in the day. Um, otherwise, we're here all morning and we'll be analysing different aspects of ECB policy. And of course, I've, I've got a blue tie on today. Oh. The tie became an important message, didn't it, for the market at, at times? Yeah, at times it was an important message, but sometimes it didn't really work. So Not my <laughs> tie, of course, Mario Draghi's <laughs> tie, but we'll tell you a bit more about the tie indicator a little bit later on. Let's send it back to you guys. I think a couple of things. One, hasn't your hair changed over the years that Draghi's been in power, Jeffrey? And, and the second question, not that that's a question for Draghi, but my question is, why does he think buying anything at record low levels of yields will actually encourage any government to do what he wants to do as well? I just don't get it. But anyway, thank you very much indeed for that. That was brilliant. And we're going to come back to you after the next break as well. So for more on Margio, Margio? Uh, Mario Draghi's even uh, eventful eight year tenure at the ECB and how Jeff's hair has changed colour over that time, go to CNBC.com. Still very thick though, the locks. Oh, he's got Glorious great head of hair. hair. Great yes. head of hair. Coming up on the show, Tesla electrified an extended trade after the automaker reports a surprise earnings beat. And we'll just take a quick look at the US performance. I mean, look, these are the broader indices, but my goodness me, there was some amazing stock action as well. A lot of action on things like Bitcoin as well. I think some of you still call that an asset class, even if the others don't. Uh, but there you go, lots going on. As far as today is concerned, market PMIs, durable goods, new home sales, couldn't be more exciting. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. 
Visit easttechwest.com for an application to attend. We've got numbers crossing from Nokia this morning for the third quarter. And don't forget, this is a key player in 5G. And I'll just go through the numbers. And I'm sure natural questions are all arising around the set. We've got third quarter sales at 5.7 billion uh, versus 5.5 billion previously. Uh, so going in the right direction. In terms of uh, what it's seen in the third quarter, it describes it as solid. It also expects the fourth quarter to be strong. However, that said, it is lowering its four-year 2019 and four-year 2020 outlook due to margin pressure and additional investment needs. And I'll just get into that in a little bit. Uh, the background here is that they were worried that there would be more aggressive action by competitors to try and win market share very early on in this 5G rollout phase. And it seems like that is starting to come into the equation. So uh, it's seeing that pressure already on pricing. 5G momentum continues. So it's talking about the number of deals that is inked. 48 deals and 15 live networks launched. And just on the 48 deal part, it seems to be inching high. The last update was roughly about 40 at uh, the June mark. And, and this in comparison, it was uh, pretty evenly split with Huawei, despite all the issues that uh, Huawei has faced. But now Huawei says uh, to the market, or has told the market, it's got about 60 deals. So again, it feels as though the Chinese competitor is inching forward on those fairly crucial deals. Just in terms of uh, what we're seeing on the software side, and this is uh, fairly key, we talk about extra services, strong performance in Nokia software, Nokia Enterprise and IP routing. So uh, the third quarter operating profit, 478 million versus 470 seen in a Refinitiv poll. This is topping out on some of those numbers. Cameron, this, this is everything in a nutshell, mm -hmm. what I have concerns about. Look, no, no one's doubting Nokia being a great company. But my problem is, where is peak margin for technology? And it's the perennial question that we can ask all the tech experts that come on as well. It's like, is it at the start of the cycle of a product or is it towards the end? Well, clearly it's not towards the end because it may become commoditized. All technology, whether it's TV, whether it's 5G, whether it's an iPhone, whatever it is, becomes commoditized towards the end. So you can't make your peak margin at the end. So your peak margin has to be somewhere near the start of a product cycle. Mm -hmm. You're talking about, and, and rightly so, the brave new world of 5G. And, and I fully embrace it. But what I don't embrace is the profitability angle that these companies tell us they're going to get. And I think this one line that you've, you've pretty much pulled out about the operating margin, this is really important. 2020 non-IFRS operating margin of 9.5% plus or minus 1.5%. Well, for a start, a 3% differential on a 9.5% margin, that is a huge, that is 30-odd percent in total, a spread. So that's a, that's a tough one. But down from <laughs> 12 to 16. So what we've got here, and I'll just take away the extremes, and people at Nokia, apologies for this. You've got, at one point they said they were going to have 16% operating margin mm -hmm. at the top level at for next year. Now, now, at the lowest level, we're talking about 50% of the margin mm -hmm. we expected originally because they're saying it could be as low as 8%. Mm -hmm. 16 to 8 is mm -hmm. a massive siving of that profit potential. And, and can I just, make, I, you and I argue brilliantly at times, but, but on terms of the, the number of deals being done compared to Huawei, I don't actually care about the number of deals. I mm. never have done it. I've never actually cared about the number of cars that anyone sells or mm. the number of products. I care about the margin on those products. Mm. And what this is telling me is they're having to fight like cats and dogs to compete with the likes of Huawei, yes. compete with the others on 5G. And their margin 
has gone potentially from a top-end scenario of 16% next year to a bottom-end scenario of 8%. I know I'm taking the extremes, but this so, is what they're telling us so today. Huawei's always been super competitive on price. So technology is very good and always been competitive on price. But now with the added pressure of a trade war, technology war on top, you've got to wonder what that means in terms of their pricing the market, whether they've got even more aggressive. And if you look at the deals that they're inking, given that both of these companies were on par in June and now they're not, Huawei is out in front, it tells you that perhaps they are securing more deals because of that pricing. It's certainly not going to be because people feel as though they're the underdog and they're just trying to support them. I don't think that's the case. I think it's purely on price. The other point I would make is that I have seen lots of murmurs in the industry about new forms of technology solutions coming into the mix, which could be disruptive to what we think are going to be the main players, likes of a Nokia and Ericsson and a Huawei. Maybe it won't just be the three. But isn't technology, new technology solutions supposed to be good for these people? Because every time there's a new technology solution, presumably it's at a lower cost and higher margin, but it's just not coming through. So, well, look, I mean, for instance, you've, you've championed 5G into automobiles, and rightly so, how it could change a whole host of things. But you think about it, the component suppliers, and then Nokia doesn't do all their own components. So mm -hmm. components to Nokia, to the operators, to the OEMs, down to the consumers. So you're talking about five slices of the pie, and I can you can bet your bottom dollar it's the consumer that will get the best slice of that so pie. You may have heard this before, where Nokia's trying to drive them its advantage is end-to-end -end solutions. Have you right. heard that one before? Well, of course we have integrated <laughs> we, we do it. Yes, we do but it we all. Come to us. We can offer the whole 5G service, but does it work? Let's see how the shares open, because I have grave concerns about that margin figure as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.